This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. So we lower our boats down to the river and we get onto this little rock ledge on the side of the river. That was where, I mean, the river was so loud. It was like roaring jet engines and the river's cutting through bedrock there. And yet you feel like a vibration. You're, you're standing next to the river and you're feeling like the, the bedrock is vibrating with the intensity of Devil Creek Rapid. This episode comes to you from glacial melt and big rain in Alaska, from friendship, and from the gutsiest river and sky movement I have ever heard about. This episode is a river story. My friend Scott Sully of Soul Gear in Moab texted me early this year in 2022 and said almost exactly this. I'm guessing you have your list of podcasts put together. While listening to yours on my trip to Mexico, I had an idea of one story I'd love to hear told again. One time, Bill Overington, a.k.a. Buckwheat, who owned a river company running the Nanana River, went to Kayak Devil's Canyon on the Susitna River, Class 6. He swam and lost his kayak and was walled in, trapped in the canyon. Survived a couple nights, I think, waiting for his buddies to return with rescue. Epic tale that I think listeners would love if Buckwheat would tell it. He doesn't tell that one much. End quote. Scott included the peak of the story in his text, but I left it out, as it is all right here in this episode. The funny thing about the story is that I thought Buckwheat lived in Alaska. Then I learned he might have moved to Salt Lake City. Scott was reaching out to him, but with no luck. And then I got wind that Buckwheat had moved to my corner of Colorado. So I called and texted many of my river friends, asking if anyone knows this Buckwheat guy. Well, the connection was made by my friend Matthew. From there, Buckwheat and I kept playing a bit of phone and text tag. And then literally, one cold and rainy Sunday on the river here in March, I was out with some friends having a great day, and I had just told my buddies during our lunch break on an island about the story I was tracking down. This one about buckwheat. Then a couple of kayakers went by on the river. Kayakers we didn't recognize. My buddy Jeff says, I bet that kayaker is your buckwheat guy. I could not not believe him. We paddled them down and I hollered at them. And you know what? It was buckwheat. It was the guy I had been looking for. Here he was in the rain of our little mountain river canyon. A couple of weeks later, after Buckwheat got in touch with his kayak buddies from 1995 and the pilot, who are all characters of the story, I sat down with Buckwheat in his dining room and had Mikey and Jerry and Bill and Connie calling in from Alaska and Colorado and Idaho. There are two episodes to this story. This episode is part one. No boat, no paddle on the Big Susitna River. My name is Bill Overington. Uh, most of my friends know me as Buckwheat. I had that nickname for my entire life, and uh, so I roll with it. At the time, I was starting a new business. I had actually started a kayaking school in 1993. 1994, started doing inflatable kayaking trips, and this is on the Nanana River, which is the eastern boundary of Denali Park for about 40 miles, Denali National Park. That was my primary focus at the time, certainly for Alaska. I had been going to Alaska in the summer since 1989 when I'd been hired as a raft guide up there. Let's go, uh, Mikey. Let's go to you next. All right. My my name is Michael Kemstead, uh, but all my friends call me Mikey K. Even my mom calls me Mikey K now because the last name is hard to spell and pronounce. My relationship with rivers started in North Dakota canoeing, but uh, whitewater-wise, it started uh, as a rafting guide uh, in Colorado in the early 80s, and that led me to Alaska. Buckley had gone up to Alaska in 89 and came back with uh, all these tales of wildness and, and rivers, free-flowing rivers, and so I uh, went up with him uh, to work on the Nanana in 1990 and just fell in love with uh, all things river uh, in Alaska. Of course, days off uh, were spent kayaking because that's where the, the real thrills are. Yeah, rivers have been a huge part of my life for the last 40 years, probably. Jerry, you're up next. Can you can you introduce yourself? Uh, my name's Jerry Jakes. started a small whitewater rafting company in 1978 out of Talkeetna and Iliamna, Alaska, doing whitewater uh, wilderness trips. And then uh, by the time the, this trip came about, I had sold my rafting company 
and I was focusing more on uh, an air taxi being a pilot as well as uh, a small wilderness lodge. All right. And Bill, can you introduce yourself, please? Oh, yeah. I'm Bill Quich, and people call me Bill Q a lot or just Q a lot of times around here. Let me see. I started boating when I was a kid in canoes and graduated onto kayaks and started doing uh, like slalom racing because I, I grew up on the East Coast in Virginia and started doing a little bit of commercial rafting. I did uh, paddle rafting on the, on the Shenandoah River and the Yakagani and some other stuff back there. But then uh, in 81, it was kind of got the bug to go travel and came up to Alaska and after a year, just kind of getting settling in, I started hanging down at Six Mile Creek a lot. By the time the 90s came, I was getting a little older and I had some things I wanted to do, like run the Susitna, or at least go look at it. And that's what led me to, to doing this trip with these guys. Connie, will you introduce yourself? My name is Connie Hubbard. I grew up in Nebraska. I didn't start kayaking till I was in my 30s when I was uh, living in Idaho. I moved north and west and ended up in Alaska in the early 90s. And uh, I was looking for people to kayak with. I ended up meeting Bill on a ski trip. We kayaked a bunch on Six Mile and things just uh, moved on from there. My role in this trip was I had no no interest in running the river. So I was more than glad to schlep all the gear onto the train in Talkeetna and then get off on the little place where with bridge where it crossed the river and set up camp for when the guys were done with their their trip. The River Radius is pleased to welcome a new advertising sponsor to the podcast, Nissan Cars and Trucks and the local Denver area Nissan dealers. Nissan has a lot of trucks and cars to choose from. Today we're going to look at their newly updated Frontier midsize truck and in the middle of this episode we're going to talk about their fully electric vehicles. The Nissan Frontier this is a midsize four-wheel drive truck. It has a new look for 2022. Check it out. It's pretty sharp looking. This Nissan Frontier comes in two styles. They have the crew cab with four doors and a short or a long bed. Or they have the king cab model with a long bed. What is important to me in a truck is how much weight it can carry and pull. And what I really mean is, can the truck get me and a stack of riverboats and my river friends to the boat ramp? Does it drive and feel safe? And can it keep those speeds steady when we're driving uphill with all that load? That's my criteria. This new Nissan Frontier has a six-cylinder, 310-horsepower engine with a nine-speed transmission. That's providing a lot of power and a lot of smooth shifting of gears. And this truck can carry about 12 to 1,600 pounds in the truck, and it can pull a trailer with about 6,200 pounds of total weight. In riverboat terms, that is several boats and frames and boxes and coolers, all your dry bags and your water jugs that are full, and yes, even your friends or my friends, maybe all of them. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius Podcast sent you. So let's start off with the framing of the story. When? What's the year, the season, the month? It was 1995. I think we have confirmed that part. The fly-in date was September 9th. All right. Can you tell me the area of Alaska because it's such a big place? Yeah, absolutely. So we are south-central Alaska, Talkeetna area. Okay. And what river are we talking about? Uh, the Big Susitna, otherwise known as the Big Sioux. Is there like a little Susitna? There is. Okay. So the formal name is the Big Susitna. Correct. Tell me about the Susitna, the volume, the character of this river. Right. So it's a relatively large volume river. The section that we were flying into is called Devil's Canyon, and it's pretty remote. The headwaters of the Big Sioux are right adjacent to the river that I work on every summer, the Nanana River. So the Nanana Glacier and the... Susitna Glacier are, I'm kind of guessing here, but maybe 30 miles apart. And the Susitna River flows south, and the Nanana River actually traverses the Alaska Range and flows north. But their headwaters are in the same place. And I guess I bring that up because um, 
The Nanana River was definitely on the rise. It had been raining quite a bit. And the evening that I was driving south from Denali to Talkeetna, the sky was very black, ominously so. And so as I'm driving my van through Cantwell, I'm looking that direction out the Denali Highway. And I know that the Nanana has already been on the rise for a few days, coming up to a pretty good level. So I naturally assumed that the Big Sioux was doing the same. Had you been to this stretch of river before? No. Any of you? Well, only driven in on a snow machine close to it in the wintertime, but had never really seen it in person. I had been on the river and run the river three different times over the years. Jerry was most familiar with the river and the section of river. Okay, and then so how many, how many of you went boating that day? Three. Three kayakers. Correct. Were you guys, you know, I want to know about the skill. I'm assuming you're good boaters. Yeah, yeah. I'd go with good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any? My, Mikey and Bill had more class five paddling experience than I had. I was mentioning earlier that that was the first full summer of starting my new business, uh, Denali Outdoor Center on the Nanana River. And I had literally worked every day of the summer, 12 to 15 hours a day. And uh, this was at the very end of the summer. I think the only other thing that I did that particular summer other than work on the Nanana was attempt to paddle Devil's Canyon. Mm-hmm. That was it. Okay. Yeah. A little sleeping, a little eating. A little bit. Okay. Yeah. So um, do you guys know the volume? Do you, do you have any ideas on the volume, like normal volumes and the volumes it was flowing at when you went? I remember 26,000. Do you guys remember that? I think you guys wanted to do the river at somewhere between twelve and 15,000 CFS, and you were all Correct. twittering, thinking about it, and it just kind of kept going up. It went to 17, it went to 20, and I don't know, sometime when it was probably over 20, you were like, okay, we just got to go. You were going at a much higher level than you had wanted to go, but you just, the compulsion to go was there. So, correct. I think I remembered like 25, 26,000 when we were actually in there. Just to maybe tie it back into, I'm driving south from Denali down to Talkeetna. It's pouring rain. Um, I know the Nanana's been on the rise. I'm sure that the Susitna is coming up as well. And at this point, I'm thinking, well, it's probably unlikely, first of all, that we'll even be able to fly in because the weather is so socked in at this point. And then it's going to have to be a real consideration on whether we go in or not based on what the river level is and what it's doing. And uh, so, yeah, I get down to Talkeetna, it's evening time, and talk to, I guess, um, I think we were all there that evening and kind of talking about it and deciding what we think we want to do and what it seems like it's really coming down to. And Jerry, I don't know what your recollection is of that scenario, but it seemed to me like it was pretty unlikely we were even going to be able to fly at all. The weather was ugly and yeah, you're right. We didn't know till we actually were in the airplane if if we were going to be able to fly due to weather. And I think each flight was going to be a, marginal whether we'd get there or not yeah and then i remember i slept well that night thinking well we're probably not going and (laughs) not too worried about it you know right and then i get the early knock on the window of my van i'm sleeping soundly i think it was mikey hey hey you should get up i think we might have a weather window jerry says we might be able to get in (laughs) oh Okay. <laughs> okay. So let me get, let me get this real quick. So are you guys all at the same place? Like where you're sleeping in your van and Jerry's there with the plane. So it's just kind of like talking communication. This isn't radio. Okay. You're all in the same place. And how many flights is it going to take to get you in? Is it one big flight or is it several shuttles? I, I think I flew you guys in super cub on wheels and we landed on a gravel bar. If I recall. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's correct. Yeah, I was since I was the lightest of the three of us, uh, Jerry, you d- decided that, yeah, you could fly two boats with me being the lightest. And um, and that was to stuff me in 
your super cub with two kayaks and a bunch of our paddling gear strapped, right. uh, you know, kayak strapped to the bottom. I think the paddles might've been strapped down there as well. So I remember when I dropped you off, we both noticed a set of grizzly tracks, big set of grizzly tracks walking right across the sandbar that we landed on to drop you off. I remember that very well as well, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> See you soon. The second flight was a scouting mission too. Okay. And uh, in hindsight, that, that would have been enough for me. Jerry's uh, flying skills were on full display. We were in and out of the canyon getting as close a look at all the rapids as we possibly could and like down in, getting a close view, back up out of the canyon, loop around, get a downstream angle of it. And uh, so just the, the flight in would have been enough for me. Yeah. Yeah. And when no, you say a close-up view, are you saying 10 feet off the water, 200 feet off the water? Usually probably 50 feet gives the best view of, of the rapids. So I don't really remember it, but that would be my guess, the altitude I would have been. Okay. 50 feet. Five Sounds story. about right. Yeah. Five-story building. You can see good. So on, on my my flight in, uh, the first flight in, I just remember thinking how different it was to fly in with a pilot that was also a river running person, a kayaker and a rafter, and a person who had experience on that river. You know, all other fly-in river trips I've done in Alaska are with people who are just, they're just pilots and not so much river runners, but uh, to be in a plane with with Jerry and his knowledge of that river and other rivers and his excitement level, I could just feel he was as excited as us to be, you know, to be part of, uh, of some people going in to run Devil's Canyon. So uh, for me, that was a real honor to be uh, flown in by, by Jerry. Absolutely. And yeah, the, just the energy level and the stoke of the whole thing was yeah, like I say, the flight in was very exciting and a good view of the river because Jerry knew what we needed to look at, what was going to be beneficial for us as far as knowing what was downstream. So he gave us the best look. And I think it's important to note that Jerry was a part of a Chris Spelius project. So six weeks prior to this, Chris had put together this thing called the Timex Expedition. It was basically a paddling venture from Alaska to Chile. And Jerry had been a part of that and had actually been a part of paddling Devil's Canyon six weeks prior. Jerry, you, you, were, you were on the water in Devil's Canyon or in the air? I flew them all in and then I probably made a bad decision because I hadn't been doing much boating and I decided to join the team and kayak it. I'd been in there uh, twice before and both times the, the first rapid, I had kind of run the very edge of it and taken the easiest possible route. And that time I decided I wanted to go for the meat of it. And Chris, Chris thought I was nuts and he was right because I wound up swimming. And if it hadn't been for, the helicopter that was there filming, I would have drowned. Uh, the helicopter rescued me, and it was uh, one of the closest uh, near-death experiences I've ever had. So, uh, you know, the canyon, uh, my last trip down there had been terrifying, and I, I'd almost died. So besides having all these guys being fellow kayakers and friends, I really wanted to give them the best view possible so they could, they could make a rational decision on whether they were going to run it or not. All right, so you guys are all there. You've all flown in. So we all get in. You, you got you got all people there, and uh, it's time to go. What time of morning are you are you are you kind of suiting up and getting in the water? Well, there was a bit of a delay between the two flights, yep. between Mikey's flight and our flight. So now it's getting a little later in the day. So we're feeling a little sense of urgency. Like, what do you guys think? Was it early afternoon, kind of, when we put on? Yeah, I think it was early afternoon. Mm -hmm. And and how many miles are you supposed to go? About 25. 20, 25 miles, early afternoon. So we put on, and um, I don't know what Mikey and Bill's recollection was, but you know how a river feels when it's rising, surging. I felt the pulse of the river very much under my boat, even in the small riffle rapids above the first big rapid of Devil's Canyon. So Devil's Creek comes in on the right, but um, 
Yeah, there were a few small wave sets above that, and those waves were surging. You could feel that, and uh, there was a lot of water in the river, and it was moving real fast. I, ab- I absolutely remember the strength of the water, even like in the flat water, practically. And, well, also the, and getting back to the, the scouting it from the airplane, you know, we were looking at all these, you know, the major rapids, right? And they were, you know, incredible from the air, the size and, and the speed. You could just see the exploding waves and everything. And, and then I remember above the, the real rapids, there was one riffle that you know, looked like, okay, there's, that's kind of a good indicator that once you get to this, you know, the first real rapid, but it wasn't really much of a rapid from the air just a ripple um and that was a good indicator that you knew that the you know the real rapids were coming so when we finally got to that little ripple above the real rapids i remember the waves being about six or seven feet tall totally and then i knew then how (laughs) what what a day we had in store because everything else was going to be gigantic i guess uh yeah we get we get through the the ripple that mikey k is talking about and we know we're there, so we get out to scout. The the volume, the intensity, the speed, the scale of it all, for me anyway, there was a, a realization at that first scout that um, this was a big deal. And um, giant waves, giant holes, very fast. And And at this point, you're in there. I mean, is it one of these places you can't, you can't, the only way out is on the water downriver? Is it sheer or is it just, it's graduatedly Mm -hmm. steep down to the, to the water. And it's just thick brush with devil's club and alders, just super thick, thick bush, steep, loose soils, and just not easy hiking, climbing, no, no real good escape route other than the river. Yeah. Everything is really far away. You're 60 miles from the closest road where you've started right so if you're hiking out of the canyon you're still hoping someone's going to come get you somehow which is a a lot of somehows okay yeah and i guess we didn't really have a solid plan b when we went in there it was uh we just went in to do it however it is important to note that on the flight in um jerry made it clear to all of us that our sort of best Option plan B was an old airstrip that was down in Devil's Canyon above the last big rapid. So Devil's Gorge being the last big rapid, and there was an old airstrip. And he said, if there's an emergency, if something happens, if there's a problem, try to get to that old airstrip. I might have to drop you some tools to clear things, brush and whatever, but I think I can get in there which is in the middle of the devil's Canyon section. And, and this, uh, this is a time when you're not carrying, do you have any form of communication? Like no. even a, there's no, like even like a ground to air radio. No, I did not have any form of communication. Okay. So first rapid you're scouting, you feel the, you feel the, the vibe of the river is, is it's, it's, it's powerful. It's, yeah. It's powerful. It's talking to us. We decide to portage the first, Big Rapid, Devil Creek, which in hindsight, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it was the right decision, but maybe not the easiest decision. It wasn't an easy portage by any means. And the first three rapids come in uh, pretty quick succession. You know, you have Devil Creek, the nozzle, and then Hotel Rock. And they're sort of like back to back to back. So we portage around Devil Creek Rapid and then we find a little, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, a little ravine sort of thing going down to the river that gets us kind of to the section in between, if there's an in-between to it, Devil Creek and the nozzle. So we lower our boats down to the river and we get onto this little rock ledge on the side of the river. That was where... I mean, the river was so loud. It was like roaring jet engines and the river's cutting through bedrock there. And yet you feel like a vibration. The bedrock is vibrating with the intensity of Devil Creek Rapid. Right. You feel like the little bit of jelly underneath you that the whole earth is literally moving. You feel that. Yeah. yeah. All right. I did. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
You still feel it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it took a little seal launch. Yeah, we were basically in the tail waves from the Devil's Creek Rapid. And it's also the intro there to the to the next rapid. To the nozzle, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Okay. So tail waves are the entrance between uh, Devil Creek Rapid and into the nozzle. You slide your boats in the water and uh, whatever. Do you, you go. You yeah, go. it was sort of a seal launch, one at a time okay. kind of thing. For me, personally, that moment standing on the bedrock below Devil Creek Rapid and just witnessing the power and the glory of that amazing river charging past us, uh, for me, it was kind of a highlight because how else are you going to find yourself in that place? You know, and, and for me personally, I've, I've paddled with a lot of really good paddlers. I've, I've never really been, um, you know, the best paddler in the group typically and um, getting kind of dragged along on a lot of things. Thanks, Bill. And, uh, but uh for me, like I said, it's it's not about conquering the river. It's more about seeing what the river is all about out in these wild, especially like what drew me to Alaska was, you know, the, the wilderness, the wild, wild places. And that moment standing on that rock with that river just roaring past um, was a, a real, real highlight. For me as well, not only of that trip, but just of my entire paddling career, standing in that place and feeling that kind of power and yeah. How, how, how wide is the river? How wide do you think it is? Boy, that's an even hard one to say because the scale is so off there. I mean, it could have been a couple hundred feet across there. Yeah, it, it changes from the beginning. Devil Creek Rapid, it, it starts out pretty wide and kind of, you know, funnels down a little bit. And then through the tail waves going to the next rapid, it gets narrower and narrower. And that's why they call the next rapid the nozzle it pinches up uh, pretty good, but being a big, big river, yeah, you know, like in the nozzle, it might be a hundred feet across and where we were standing on that rock at the bottom of the big rapid might've been 200 feet. And at the very top of the rapid, maybe 300. And those are all just estimates from, yeah, from 27 years ago. Yeah. Right. So this, this river is, is, is while it's, it's got some width, it probably has a pretty deep depth as well. It's very channeled up at this point where, yeah. where we're staying, getting ready to put on. And and I, I think the narrowest part of the canyon is that next drop, the okay. nozzle. All right. Where it pinches up tight. Nissan has been building fully electric vehicles for 12 years and has over 5 billion miles on this fleet as a testament to their efficacy. That is billion with a B. Nissan has two electric vehicles to choose from. That is the Leaf and the new Aria. Both of these electric vehicles can handle most day runs on the river. You can put your friends in the car with you. You can have your boats loaded on the roof or in the hatch. You can throw a bike on a bike rack and run your own shuttle. The Nissan Leaf for 2022 has a range between 150 and 225 miles. This is a smaller car with four doors and a hatchback. You can easily add a roof rack system. You can also fold the seats down for inside cargo space. The second vehicle from Nissan is the new Aria. This will be available in the fall of 2022, and you can reserve this car now. This is a slick-looking four-door SUV, has lots of comfortable features, and a range up to 300 miles, and they even have an all-wheel drive model. Again, you can reserve that Nissan Aria now. Check out your Denver-area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com tell them the river radius podcast sent you and so i i can't remember who went first did uh you go first mikey no that was bill bill went, bill first. went first yep yeah. yeah yeah i remember sliding in and all the best information we had was to run the nozzle on the right and yep. you couldn't really out the nozzle from where we were. It was just down there. It was like this horizon line. It was a big hydro, well, waves going into like a big hydraulic thing with a big swirly um, surging eddy on the left. Yeah. And I think the plan was to like eddy out on the right, but I jumped in that river and it was, it was that power again. And I just started paddling and I couldn't see anything. It's, you know, you're just down in the bottom of waves. And I kept thinking, just go to the right, just go to the right. And 
that was it. That's how the whole thing started. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think that was uh, what we understood was to try to punch the nozzle, try to punch as hard to the right as you can and stay right and stay out of the whirlpools on the left. And I think, Mikey, you made it to the right, didn't you? I did. I I remember that as well. And I remember, too, uh, reading in, in the book that uh, the better portage, uh, if you decided to portage Hotel Rock, was going to be on the right side of the river. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was our, you know, our goal was to try to punch that, that massive hydraulic uh, and get to the right and avoid all, you know, as much as we can, the, the big whirlpools that dominate the middle and left side of the river and that massive eddy there. Because the nozzle, the nozzle is real narrow, but then it widens way out, and it just everything gets real swirly in there. So yeah, we're lined up on the rock to do our seal launches. Or for those of you not familiar with that, it's you just you are in your kayak all ready to go, and you you're not touching the water at this point, but you're above it, either a cliff or a slope, and then you just kind of inch your way forward, and then just slide as fast as gravity takes you down to the water. So we're above this super fast wave train of the tail waves of, of Devil Creek Rapid above the nozzle and it's Bill and me and then Buckwheat sitting there looking at each other on you know on the rock with our kayaks all ready to go and sitting in them and Bill took off and I was surprised at how quickly he disappeared like he hit the water and was just gone down gone so, so fast you know in in serious white water you don't want to crowd each other you don't want but you know you want to ideally be close enough that you can help each other out, you know, but with Bill just hitting the water and just disappearing and, and, and being gone, you know, gone downstream immediately. I was like, well, I think I'm going to go. And I just looked at Buckwheat and I said, see you at the bottom. And I dropped down off the rock with, you know, like slid down uh, into the water and what looked like happened to Bill happened to me. I was just gone and, and into the fray. And then, uh, yeah, go ahead, Buckwheat. Yeah. So I, I had that, that anticipation. Now I've seen Bill and Mikey, both take off and disappear. And I can't see really where they went. I can't see them, you know, in the nozzle or having run the nozzle, like the waves are too big to even see them sort of drop through that particular drop. So yeah, I'm like, well, I don't want to get left too far behind. So I drop in and feel that sensation of like probably the fastest peel out I've ever had in my kayak and not intentionally just hit the water and you're out of there. I'm paddling through the waves, paddling through the waves, looking downstream, thinking, go right, go right, go right, paddle hard to the right. And, um, I hit the hydraulic and it pushed me super hard to the left. I did not get flipped over, but I ended up in the whirlpools. I was in the whirlpools and stuck in the whirlpools and trying to paddle out of the whirlpools and the eddy fence was huge and I kept getting swept back into the whirlpools. I think I got knocked over a couple of times, rolled up, but I was just trying to, you know, maintain any kind of an upright position the entire time I was in there fighting for balance and whatever. Eventually I ended up swimming out of my boat. That took me deep enough to find current and get out of the whirlpools. But Hotel Rock is, how far downstream is Hotel Rock? Like, not far. It's right there. <laughs> yeah, not far. And so you're on the left side of the river. Yeah. So I, I come to the surface. I actually still have my paddle in my boat at this point. I'm trying to get him in. It's a big eddy pool there on the left. And I'm trying to get everything pushed over there. But Hotel Rock is coming up fast. And so I finally bail on the boat. And I've got the paddle. And I tried to actually swim with the paddle, you know, use that technique. Sort of wasn't going so well, partly the swirly current. I wasn't getting good strokes. And so I like bail on the paddle and literally swim for my life, swim over. And I, I saw Bill in the eddy over on the left. And I, ha- I hadn't really seen Mikey, I don't think at this point. I don't think I saw him when I was struggling in the whirlpools. I make it, I make it to shore. Um, and I'm like on the, a rock wall and I'm out of the water. I'm maybe ankle deep or a little deeper, but I know the river's surging. A- as I got to the 
the canyon wall and got a grip and was holding. I looked downstream just to see what was down there if, you know, I couldn't hold on or whatever. And I saw the surge of the eddy going through a little channel to the left and there was like a rock outcrop, but the eddy was kind of surging through this little left channel. So I'm gripping, holding on to the rock wall and I'm trying to look for a way to kind of climb up and get out of the water. And in that amount of time, the water starts surging and it just finally comes up to probably my waist or so enough to sweep me off the wall and I'm back in the river. And this is, this is not long. This is seconds, minutes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Seconds, you know, I'm probably standing on that ledge for 15, 20 seconds, I suppose. Not that long. Um, and so I'd seen this surge go through this little slot in the rocks and, once I was back in the river, I'm like, well, I don't know what's on the other side of that, but that's where I'm going. Cause if I go to the outside of this rock outcrop, I don't think I'm getting out of the river before hotel rock. It's right there. So I stay left and swim through the channel, which was uh, relatively shallow. I took a pretty good hit to my right hip going through there, but it spit me out onto a little gravel beach once I got through there. And uh, so there I was laying on the shoreline, the left shoreline, the portage around Hotel Rock is on river right, supposedly. I'm on the left. And um, yeah, so no boat, no paddle. So no boat, no paddle. You're on a gravel bar and this gravel bar. So you just described that you were previously on this rock wall, ankle deep, knee deep. And the river surged enough to push it down. The eddy surged and swept me off the wall and back into the river. And so at this gravel bar that you've now found, do you have enough space to climb up a little bit if the river surges? Or are you... I'm, I'm clear. I'm out of the river. You're out of the river and you've got I'm more on, space. I'm on a little gravel beach and yeah. I can get out. And now I have I've the picture like Mikey made it to the river right side. Bill's over on river left. And I, I should let Mikey and Bill take it from there. I'm... I'm just sitting there on the beach, sort of dazed and confused. I have to say that this, these moments there are probably the most emotional moments I've ever had boating. It was, uh, I went down the, the nozzle and I ended up getting pushed left, but stayed out of that swirly eddy and made it to the very bottom of the eddy on the left. And I was up against, it's like a rocky bike that runs across the river there. And I was up against that dike on the left. And then there's the slot that goes to the nozzle. And I could look over and I could see Mikey on the other side. And he looked real comfortable over on that side. And so I just kind of hung out there. And then we saw Buckwheat's boat bobbing around. And, uh, you know, started getting a little nervous about that. And then saw him swim by. And at that point, we'd already decided we weren't going to run Hotel Rock. So I had to get out of my boat, but the river would surge like four feet. I just want to make one quick comment about that moment when Bill's on the one side of the river, Mikey's on the other, and Buckwheat goes by. And I visualize those guys looking at each other and making a decision not to go after him, which is the first Bill did not pursue a swimmer. Yeah, it was like I remember looking across and seeing Mikey, and we made eye contact. And we weren't on a chase. And it was a real shock. And uh, I climbed out of the boat and, you know, I'm hoping for the best and I don't know what I'm going to find. So I scrambled down there and lo and behold, I mean, there's Buckwheat just standing there, just staring. <laughs> it was like, he was in shock. I mean, we went down there, I go, Hey, Buckwheat, Buckwheat. He goes, Oh man, I'm sorry. And I'm like, uh, don't be sorry. It's like, you're here. And uh, it's like, that's the way it went for a couple of hours, I think. Mikey, you want to add anything? From my perspective, you know, we took off to run the nozzle and the bill disappeared. And then I had my experience in the nozzle. I, I got knocked over and had to roll up. When I came to the surface, I was pointed, my boat was just pointed to the right. So I just paddled as hard as I could to get to the right. Then I was able to look around and that's when I, I saw Buckley coming downstream. And uh, same thing, I, I'm 
all about rescuing and helping people that are in distress in, in the river. And I remember starting to paddle forward to go help my buddy Buckley. And then I remember starting to back paddle because I remembered what was downstream, which is the Hotel Rock, which I, in my mind, I said, well, I want to help Buckwheat, but then I don't want to die either uh, because at a certain water level, the Hotel Rock itself becomes a big hydraulic. Water's pouring over it, where at lower flows, you might be able to paddle on either side to get around it, right? But at these higher flows, it's just one big river-wide dangerous hydraulic or a keeper hole, as they call it. And uh, chances are that those flows going into the hole in, you know, in Hotel Rock just downstream, especially with somebody on the back of my boat as I'm trying to, you know, if I'm trying to help Buckley get to shore, both of us were just going to go in there and it was going to be really not pretty. So I, I, you know, I was like torn between helping my buddy and staying alive. Yeah. Either one of you peeling out to help me and try to tow me out of there was going to take uh, all of us into Hotel Rock. Like it was just too close. There wasn't the, the water was moving too fast. That rescue just was not going to really be possible or practical. Yeah. I knew I was on my own. But you swim out before Hotel Rock. Everyone's out of the water. We're still above Hotel Rock. We're still above Hotel Rock. But I'm on River Left, and Bill is on River Left. And as far as we know, the portage is on River Right, which Mikey's over on River Right. But there's no way for me to get to River Right. So I think uh, Mikey ended up ferrying across above Hotel Rock, coming over to River Left. That's that's correct, yeah. I. I was over there all by myself and I, I missed you guys. So I, I paddled across the river. Uh, honestly, one of the scariest, um, you know, ferries or, you know, moving from one side of the river to the other that I've ever done, of course, with, you know, Hotel Rock just downstream. But um, yeah, I got over there so that we could all kind of be together and formulate a plan. And uh, then, we, yeah, ended up doing the, the portage on the left side, which was uh, more time consuming and energy sapping. That's what we were up against at that point. Yeah, so probably took us, what, at least an hour. Yeah, we started realizing we were going to be spending the night. Right. But we wanted to be below Hotel Rock. We didn't want to spend the night right there where we were. Then we start looking for camp, really. But uh, we have to go downriver. Below Hotel Rock, there's still kind of a narrow corridor for the river and the canyon there. So Bill towed me. And so we paddle through this kind of straight section of the river and um, it kind of comes out of canyon walls and the river makes a bend to the right and there's a stream coming in on the left and looked like camp to us and so but I'm still a little like shocky and out of sorts at this point so I'm really following Bill and Mike's lead on what we're doing at this point shocky because not because you are uh physically hurt but because mentally you've swam a terrifying place you've lost your boat things aren't going as you wanted them to go and exhausted yeah. like very tired yeah. and yeah and big hit on your hip all these things mm-hmm. okay okay mm-hmm. okay so exactly. you find a camp you know i just have in my mind that you guys are just freezing cold camping is there something else that you have do you have some fire kit with you I had a, I had a, I brought along an empty tin can and a couple of tea bags and a space blanket. Thankfully, because I, I had nothing at this point. Everything was pretty much in my boat. Oh, right. You got a boat that's got stuff. Yeah. Which in hindsight, you know, now, now I know to keep at least the basic essentials on me inside my dry suit. Uh huh. Yeah. But I didn't have, and it was all in my boat. Wow. Which okay. was gone. But, but did you guys have a fire? We did. Yeah, we made a smoky little fire because it started raining. Mm. Yeah, the weather moved back in. Mm-hmm. We had a smoky little fire. My my recollection of that evening is honestly pretty vague. So I know that uh, we made it through the night. We kind of cuddled up in the, you know, whatever in the forest there on the shoreline and had not a very restful night whatsoever. And in the morning... Mikey and Bill got up and said, we're going to paddle out and try to figure out how to get you out of here. 
And you were good with that. I mean, how were you with that? I felt that was the best option at that point. Yeah. Yeah. There was only, there was only one way out to go get help. And like, I certainly wasn't going to swim from there because it was just, and we did, we did. Yeah. And we did have the plan that, um, I was going to try to hike down to that old airstrip above devil's gorge that Jerry had pointed out on the flight in. Yeah. Mikey and Bill paddled out and I attempted to hike down to the airstrip. Let me, let's go, let's, let's hold on before we go past the departure. Cause th- this to me, as I'm thinking about this story, this, this part, there's, you know, I'm not on the trip, but I've been on enough trips where I, I wonder what you felt like all of you, what all of you felt like in that moment when it's time to say, Buckwheat, we hope we see you. And you say to your homies, I trust you. That's right. I'm making all this up too. Like, so I want to hear, I want to hear Buckwheat. What are you thinking in the moments of getting ready and they're pushing off in their boats? What are you, what's going on? Well, I felt an absolute sense of isolation, you know, that, okay, you're on your own now for a while. You don't know how long exactly this might take or how it's all going to shake out in the end, but you're on your own to get this figured out for at least, today, tomorrow, whatever. And, um, hoping for the best for my friends that they paddle safely through the rest of the Canyon. Yeah. It's no joke paddling out either. No, they still have major rapids downstream. Um, and so I'm hoping for the best for them, but I, I never felt any sense of abandonment. Not at that point, not when they didn't come out to try to, you know, rescue me when I was swimming. I never felt like my friends were abandoning, abandoning me in any way. They were doing what they had to do and what was best for them in terms of their own self-preservation. Yeah. What we all think we'll do in those situations, but maybe we haven't all faced it. Exactly. So I've heard you say two interesting things here. You've said that you don't feel abandoned. No when they don't come paddle out into the headwater of what's it called? The nozzle. No, uh, uh, above, Hotel Rock. Above Hotel Rock. Yeah, they don't yeah. come because it's just, it's, it, it, yeah, it's, it's what it is. And then also when they paddle off the next morning to go get, to get out and to hopefully get you help, you don't feel abandonment, but you do feel isolation. Yeah. Just describe that isolation. What, tell me a little bit more about that. Like what, what is, what is pushing on that isolation? If it's not abandonment, what pushes on to, to bring that isolation feeling? Well, I know that I'm just in a very remote place that um, no, no matter what Mikey and Bill do to try to get me out of there, it's going to be difficult. And looking at the terrain and um, knowing that, you know, my objective is to try to hike five miles downstream in this Canyon that they call devil's Canyon is not going to be easy. And thinking how, how am I even really going to recognize that place? How am I gonna, you know, bushwhack my way through here and up this just unfriendly looking slope and what's going to be up there. And I know it's full of bears I have that to keep in mind. I don't have a gun. I don't have bear spray. I don't, I don't have anything. So anyway, yeah, they pat, they paddle off. I pack up the little bit of what I have with me and in my dry suit and my booties and, um, PFD and start climbing up out of the Canyon. So Bill and Mikey, if you can inform us of your feelings as you push off that morning to paddle downstream into big rapids, into big water without your buddy, knowing you have the task of getting safely down river. And you also have the task of, of carrying out the message that, that buckwheat needs help. It was interesting that night when we were all together, because, you know, we realized that Connie was at the takeout and uh, she had no way of knowing what we were doing. We were supposed to come out. And we were just commenting on a little bit on relationships and stuff like, 
Oh yeah, Connie's such a good good person. She's down there. She'll understand. We're so lucky. <laughs> and you know, just conversation through the night. But that next morning, it was early when we got up and took off because you just couldn't sit around. It was like we just had yeah. to move. I had complete confidence that Buckwheat was going to be okay because that was all I could do to rationalize it. Because because Mikey and I had to take off and run a couple more big rapids and. I was like uh, nervous about that. So there was a lot to deal with at that moment. And I didn't think anything about leaving Buckwheat there. I just knew he'd be okay. But later on, people in Talkeetna would let me know that they thought we had done the wrong thing doing that. Hmm. What did they think you should have done? People were like, oh, you never leave your friends in the wilderness. And like, but there it's like, what are you going to do? Sit there and wait for somebody to try and find you when we have the ability for two of us to go out and, and work out another plan. As a pilot who's been in that Canyon, you guys made the absolute right decision. Uh, you had no other decisions. So that's my perspective on that. Yeah. So my perspective on leaving Buckley, of course, you know, trepidation as far as I don't want to leave my, my pal out here, but also I felt good that we had left him with a lot of supplies because even though it was supposed to be just a one day outing, any, uh, you know, old time or experienced Alaskan, uh, anything, hiker, climber, kayaker, whatever you do in Alaska, you take supplies with you because it's wild out there and you never know what's going to happen. So even though it was just a day trip, we had, quite a bit of food uh we had fire starter and and uh you know uh ways to get a fire going i had a couple of cliff bars in my inside my suit and a, a little packet you know with fire starter and lighters and matches inside my suit so if it was you know uh if i had to lose if i was to lose my boat you know you, you just you kind of have to plan a little bit more when you're out there uh doing things in alaska because uh help is a lot further away but knowing that you know, Buckwheat's super strong and smart, and uh, we're leaving him with the bulk of our food and a way to start a fire, and we left him with that space blanket that Bill mentioned that he brought, uh, like a reflective blanket. You know, we did the most that we could do for him to be able to leave him and feel okay about it uh, as far as him having at least enough supplies to, uh, to get by. This is the end of part one. Part two, No Boat, No Paddle on the Big Susitna River. The next and final episode of this story is ready for you to listen right now. A big Susitna-sized thank you goes out to Buckwheat, Jerry, Connie, Bill, and Mikey for getting us going with the story. They will all return for the second half in the next episode. Today's advertising sponsor is the Denver and Front Range of Colorado Nissan dealers. You can find them on the web at www.nissanusa.com. You can also find a dealer locator link in today's episode notes. Tell them the River Radius podcast sent you. All music in today's episode is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining the River Radius. Yeah, I'd go with good. Yeah. Because everything else was going to be gigantic. Jerry's uh, flying skills were on full display. I brought along an empty tin can. The weather was ugly. And a couple of tea bags. Looked like camp to us. And a space blanket. We had a smoky little fire. I just knew he'd be okay.